Well, I'm continuing on with, I think it would be part three of the second commandment. And I promised that I would continue um, looking at an idea that's it's only tangentially related. But I, I, the reason I bring it up is, is not because what I discovered is so interesting, but because how I discovered it um, kind of fascinates me. So the question that, that I had was, um, why would someone like Jordan Peterson, um, why would he sort of not distinguish between sociopaths and psychopaths? Um, and and I, I wondered about that. You know, I, I, I thought of it this way. That would be a question I would like to ask him. And one of the things that he suggests is, is an important part of the therapeutic process. Um, is asking yourself questions. Uh, because you know yourself best. And his, his hypothesis, backed up by a lot of experience, is that when you ask yourself something, you get a, you get a different response. Um, it, it, it's like you can think about something, but when you ask yourself something, yourself will answer and that is I think what was what happened so I have this thought is well, why does he use it and then I ask myself why wouldn't you differentiate between a sociopath and a psychopath and and you know the one answer that popped in my head is it's it's probably one is a subset of the other a sociopath is a type of flawed thinking. Um, it's a specific kind, and so to, to use the, the, the larger set, the larger domain, rather than singling out a, a single or a, a smaller sub, subset of that is has its uh, utility in terms of categories. Um, but I also realized something, and that was that I had encountered uh, the sociopath and psychopath distinction in a different realm. And, and that was sort of the answer that I answered myself. Well, of course you would think that. You've been in the jail. And in the jail, you have a very, a very distinct um, grouping between the, the sociopath and the psychopath. Okay, so from, from a, a criminologist perspective, or a penologist perspective, um, the psychopath is somebody who basically perceives reality correctly. So they're high functioning, they're, they're able to uh, understand the implications, and, but what is different about them is that sometimes they describe it as they're lacking in empathy, or another way to say it is they they, they don't they don't project upon others um, what they themselves would recognize as painful. Okay, so so it, it comes down to this that the psychopath is very good at figuring out what's good for him, but seems unable 
to even even consider that that what causes him pain might cause another pain or doesn't care um, now as a practical um, as a practical category if you're not a, a psychologist but you're somebody who's, who's working to house uh, people who have been deemed not fit for society for some period of time Social, sociopaths present a real problem um, because they're great at manipulating and they are able to appear very sincere they don't seem crazy and uh, so so that they don't encounter hard stops in their life and so the, the incidence of recidivism is really high um, there's some people say you, you simply can't can't change that. Now, from the criminal perspective, a psychopath is somebody who doesn't doesn't cognitively recognize reality correctly. Okay, so and and, and the problem we have with with a psychopath is that we aren't entirely sure. We're, we're, we're entirely sure that they're doing things that are, are wrong, that are unacceptable, that are not going to be tolerated by our society, but we aren't entirely sure that they're even deciding to. Um, I mean, I don't hear voices. If I did hear voices all the time, would I think that I should maybe listen to the voices? I don't know. I don't hear them. So I don't know what sort of... I, 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 I just... I don't know. What it would be like to hear them, and and so our our correction system, our, our our justice system, tends to say we're not entirely sure that we're not entirely sure that that you should be punished in the same way if if you're not perceiving reality in the same way, and so. Um, a psychopath might might be um, sent for treatment as opposed to punished. It's not absolutely clear that they could even comprehend what was what was wrong with what they're doing. Now, I don't think that that is a very clinical definition. It's just the definition that that the correction system has to deal with. But I do think it is a useful distinction. And that is that, that a psychopath, you'll at some point say, whoa, they're, they're, they're just off. I don't know where they're coming up with this stuff. You won't say that about a sociopath. And I'm speaking practically, okay? And, and, and there's a problem with that. There may be a better way of describing it in terms of psychology. But I'm talking about it in terms of people who I have, I have sat with and talked to and observed and I, I look at them and I, I'm like they are they're very easy to get along with and easy to talk to and you never really think that they're out there in left field you just you just kind of don't know what to make of the fact um, they seem so normal and yet they're capable of being pretty 
pretty malevolent and not feeling bad about it. So why am I even discussing sociopaths as opposed to psychopaths? So I, I would understand that, that sociopath, the pathology that I'm talking about, that is, is characterized by a sociopath, is a, is a flawed way of, of, of flawed cognition. It's a flawed way of, of understanding the world. Um, to, to think that only you feels pain and, and that the people who would feel pain around you are are not. Okay, that's that's not a... That is a, a kind of psychopathology. But it is specifically the, the sociopath. I think it is specifically the sociopath that is... In a that, that I'm talking about when I'm talking about the evolution of a religion. So the point of, of this whole first section is, I mean, we're getting to the point of of what the what the evolution of, of religion or the emergence of religion might mean. But I didn't want to pass it by until I had I had sort of pointed out that I am. I think there's a lot more to be discovered about what happens um, when you think about something compared to when you ask yourself a question. Um, turns out I think I have a, a pretty good answer, although I wandered around like I didn't have an answer. And what gave me the answer was, was actually phrasing it to myself as a question. Okay, so that's why I think that, that Jordan Peterson talks about things as a pathology. But I see things, or I have I have been in a, in a realm that sees things as a um, makes a distinction. Now, having made that distinction, somebody who would I remember I I had created this this whole sort of ridiculously complicated way in which somebody might foist religion upon somebody less sophisticated. And it would take it it would take a sociopath, alright, to, to try to say now I, I don't think it takes somebody incredibly twisted and malevolent to use to use an established concept of religion to gain their personal ends. That, that's not a very creative person. As a matter of fact, they may be a loving and kind person. Short-sighted, but loving and kind. I, because I see parents do that. Parents will try, they will envision what they want their child to be. And they probably have a pretty good idea of what would be good for the child. Um, they certainly don't want something bad for the child directly. They may inadvertently want something that would be bad, like for the child to be safe. Um, but, but they want the child to be safe, not because they're mad at the child or because they're feeling malevolent toward the child. They want the child to be safe precisely because they love the child. And so if somebody tries to harness religion to their what they believe is them knowing what's best for another individual, I, I can't say I, I approve of it, but I can't say that I find that super troubling. 
but we're not talking about using an existing concept of religion. We're trying to figure out why people would come in the first place to worship idols. Um, and and the answer that it was charlatans, these sociopaths who who didn't care about other people but saw a chance to deceive people by claiming to be a spokesman of God are I, I don't get how they would have gotten their power so so I mean roughly roughly speaking as humans developed and became more complex there are there are hierarchies of competence, um, hierarchies of social interaction, which give you greater greater benefit than a straight power hierarchy. Okay, even even wolves and primates know that. All right, being the big mean leader is not the best. It's it's better to be a, a reciprocal leader who who is in uh, good relationships with a lot of a lot of members of the pack or the troop or whatever. And and it certainly was true of humans. But for for people who were seen who, who, who sort of concocted this that what it would take to out of whole cloth deceive people into making up a religion and putting themselves at the head of it is if it happened that way it would be a remarkable long-term triumph of sociopaths and I don't think that happens but what worries me is that the, the postmodernist thought that that any time we're acting civilized, that it's just a, a facade hiding the basic struggle for power that, that was existent between any two animals, the law of the jungle, so to speak. The problem with that postmodernist is they view, roughly speaking, I think they view the sociopath as a more highly a, a, a more a more highly developed form of the human animal and so even while the, the even while the, the, the for instance the, the postmodernist um, who came up with Marxism, you know, it, it, it almost would appear that they would charge religion being the opiate of the masses, and they aren't entirely condemning that. They're just wishing they had come up with it. Um, I mean, that, that's not a very sophisticated way to describe it, but, but what I'm saying is that it does seem like people can envision being a, a, a human 
who is able to perceive reality correctly, but is unfettered by empathy towards other humans, there seems to be a, a possibility of, of thinking that that somehow is a dominant form, a superior form of, of human evolution. Now, I don't know why they would think that, but I, I think that they must think that because one of the things that they undermine so consistently are, are incredible human achievements that came from a human consensus on things like morality. So, so there's been a, a widespread human consensus that morality, that morality is useful. And, and the postmodernists come along and, and basically say, well, we gotta, we gotta tear down. That, that can't possibly be true and we can't let it stand. Um, because somebody could use that idea to, to gain power and we want power for ourselves. But what emerges is that that as they characterize in such simplistic terms these these long term these long term human areas of consensus like religion that, that they reveal sort of this this underlying concept that, that the human who has no no empathy, no concern for how others might feel, is the human best equipped to make completely rational decisions. And I mean, sometimes they intimate that, that if we could just make completely rational decisions, that, it, that if we didn't have um, religion and sentimentality clouding our thinking, we could do what's best for everyone. But there is, there is no scientific basis for that. For a lot of reasons. And I don't want to get lost in that. But, but my, my point so far... I'm sorry, it's not a very clear point. But basically what I'm saying is that when I came to the idea of idolatry and and polytheism and came to the second commandment as sort of the counterbalance to that i really struggled to say why why would so many people have embraced idolatry and I, and i i still don't find the reasons uh, for idolatry very convincing but I think there is a clue in the Old Testament. Um, in Daniel, um, he talks to the talks to the king, and he, he uses the living God in, in a number of places. Um, the living God is set in in contrast to idols, and 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 it may have been an effective tool, right? It, it, you know, basically, yeah, that would be a good thing of 
propaganda is to say, well, you know, the, the, your idols are obviously dead. Wouldn't it be better to have a living God? Um, and some people would say, well, no, because a living God couldn't be in everyone's kitchen, but the idols can be, you know. But for others, they would say, yeah, it, it really would be nice if there were a living God. And, and so the limitations of being embodied in some life form would, would outweigh um, the, the downside. So it could, it could be a, a tool, you know, just to say, well, ours is the living God. But here is, here is the understanding that I think emerges from the picture I, I drew for you in the, in the last segment, or two segments, in this beginning segment on the second commandment. And, and again, let's go back to, to, the, to the beginning of, of why I continued this response. It is the, the sneaking suspicion that I am imputing to this, this command stuff that, the, that, that the, the people who stated it originally never would have thought of. And that may be. I could be using their work and then putting my ideas to it. But I think that there's some evidence that I am not doing that because if you use this view of the second commandment, the view that I have explained to you, if you use that view, I think it gives you a, a, a very... A very clear explanation. Well, it could give you if you didn't have me confusing it with my all my words. But basically, I think it it makes it possible to have an understanding of idolatry that is far more consistent. That's what that's the point that I'm getting to. So, so let let me tell you what I think idolatry looks like in view of the first and second commandments. So let's look at um, the, the concept. Um, let, let's interpret the concept um, from a, a position consistent with the, with the Ten Commandments. Now, that requires me to introduce a, a premise. I am going to say, and I don't think this is particularly contentious, and hopefully you'll see why it is foundational. If in the way in which something is true, it is true that way, whether it is revealed to you or discovered by you. Let me, let me give you an example. Okay. Um, I learned that the, the length of the hypotenuse of a, 45, 90, 45 triangle is in a ratio of 1 to 1 to the square root of 2. And then one day I was staring at my floor, which has one foot tiles. And I was, was I wish I could draw this for you, but I was, I was looking and saying, okay, if if you have a, one side twice as big. Okay, so I have one square. Okay, now if I have two squares, I don't have any way to get two squares into a square, 
right? Because if I have two squares to make it a square, I have to have four squares. So I was trying to envision something that was half as big, something that was twice as big as one square or half as big as four, because those were sort of the increments that, that you have a square. You have one square or four squares or nine squares. Okay, when I did that, it suddenly occurred to me that the way to get something halfway between, something that is two squares in area, that all I have to do is cut four tiles on a diagonal and put them together so I have four halves. The 90 degrees come make a, a cross in the center and the slanted cut is the outside of that square. And it suddenly snapped into to focus that that's what they're talking about. The square root of two. The length of the side of a square that is twice as big as one square unit is the square root of two. And whatever that value is, it is a very simple concept. Now, I just explained it to you. I could draw it for you and you still might scratch your head, but what I'm saying is the truth that the hypotenuse of a 45, 90, 45 right triangle is the square root of two is just as true when I discover it as when it was revealed to me. Now, emotionally, it was much more exciting to discover it. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting there coming up with this saying, wow, this how it must be how Euclid felt on like day one. <laughs> on one hand, I felt pretty dumb, but on the other hand, I felt I felt like yeah, I, I guess I can see how a mathematician would would sit there and say, wow, this is this is so cool. But my premise is that that truth is the same whether it is revealed or discovered. And it's probably not useful for me to make that premise in, in, because I can't conceive of what the opposing premise would be. But since I am using that assumption, maybe that's the only assumption, um, although I, I think maybe there is an opposing assumption that somehow there is spiritual truth and there is natural truth. Okay. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I know that that exists because that's what I grew up in. I remember sort of having been taught to be offended when people would say, well, you know, the Ten Commandments is very much like something that a guy named Hammurabi came up, the Hammurabi Code. And I was like, how could that be? You know, this is inspired God's truth, and that's just somebody coming up with it. Now, I got over that pretty early and said, well, of course. The, the truth, inasmuch as these laws describe how human interaction happens. Not how it should happen, but how it does happen if you want it to be sustainable. Okay, and, and I would roughly say that is what both Moses and Hammurabi were trying to do. They were trying to say this is what will work over the longest dimension that we can that we can conceive of. 
and okay, yeah, let, let's go with that. That is that is a good a good take on this. Um, the difference is that fundamental Christians would say, but the law of Moses was revealed to him by God, and Hammurabi discovered it. And I was like, fair enough. Let's not argue about that. I mean, that's I, by, by temperament or, or, or by by whatever. I'm just like, let's not let's not get into that unless we have to. Let's look at them and, and th then let's look at the places where they are identical or practically identical, and and find that that's pretty amazing. And then let's look at the places where they differ because could they differ in a in a a way which reveals something to us and now if there is a conscious god who gives a rip about us and who has told us some useful things that would be helpful for us to know um you would expect them to be just as true or true in the same way that anything else is true right that they would be like the, the math teacher teaching me that the one to one to the square root of true of two is the correct proportions for a 45 90 45 right triangle and and you're still probably scratching your head so what's the big deal well the big deal I think is that that if we accept that the truth is the same, however we came about them, then it is wise to extract everything you can from the possibility of discovery, not claim everything was was God. Um, or, or at least, let, let's say it's an equally valid tool of interpretation. So it would be valid for me to say, okay, let's examine this as if people discovered most of it. Maybe, maybe God inspired some. And, and I, I think when you look at the density with which these, these precepts are packed into portions of Scripture, it's, it's hard not to say, wow, you know what, these are really, really brilliant men. And since I don't know people as brilliant as that, uh, could could they somehow have been in touch with, with something? Okay, I'm not claiming they are. I'm just saying that, that when you look at them, the possibility of something that, that would be roughly analogous to inspiration... Um, sort of suggests itself unbidden. Um, and, and, then, and then with some of the, the later prophetic stuff comes down, um, you know, there's some prophecies that's like, yeah, okay, that wasn't that hard. Plus you've had thousands of years to wait for one particular setting that, that came down just right. But then there's other predictions that are like, ah, boy, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's difficult to account for any other way. But what I'm saying is that, 
that I, since I in my life have, have, I don't know how honestly, but have pretty thoroughly been exposed to examining this, saying anything of value was from the revelation of God. I think I've exhausted that position and, and the, the useful parts of that, um, whatever they may be, I, I think I'm I think I'm not going to see them until I turn it around and do the opposite and exhaust the the rational interpretation. And then maybe compare the two. Okay, so all of that is to say that, that I am going to look at this rationally. I'm going to look at religion as if, as if it didn't come from the revelation of a, of a higher conscious being. Uh, being, I, 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 what else do we call it but a being? I don't know whether it's embodied, um, but some higher conscious personality. Maybe that's, that's a better way. Um, I'm going to look at religion as if it didn't come from that. For now. And so I, I'm going to say truth is truth. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to immediately say, well, do you think it was revealed? Well, then it must not be true. I'm going to say, does it hold true? Does it give us an explanation that answers a lot of dimensions, an interpretation that fits the reality that we're seeing at a lot of different places and even some unexpected places? Okay, so let's do that. So we come to th this experience that of a young person who is becoming aware of their consciousness. They start to ask why. And after they've asked why for a while, um, why is the, the sky blue? Why are there waves on the water? Why are they, why do puppies have tails? I mean, they, they come up with these questions. And then they move into a phase of of asking, of realizing that every answer you give them has another why. And then most kids move out of that phase. Now, is it is it mocked out of them because parents kind of laugh at that? And, or is it is it threatened out of them because parents don't have an answer and don't want to admit it? Maybe. But since most people move on, I would say that, that part of the human experience is realizing that that is a path we cannot go down endlessly. We, we, we look at it and we say, okay, yeah, there is a pathway there, but we can't, we can't pursue that path. We're, we're unable to pursue it. Okay, so when we are unable to pursue the question, uh, this endless series of why, this endless series of, well, what caused that? Well, what caused it to cause that? Well, what caused it to cause it to cause that? And what caused it to cause it to cause it to cause that? And so on, ad nauseum. That is where I think the psychological concept of God resides. The psychological concept of God resides in our discovery at a pretty early age that we don't have the ability to pursue that endlessly. And since we don't have the ability to pursue that endlessly, it is 
wise to pick a stopping point and say up to here we have reason and past here we have God. Which I, I think lends some of the some of the the foundation to the idea of faith and reason being a divide. It is a divide. Um but it is a divide on it, it are their regions on the same continuum, roughly. So we say here are the reasons, and then here is a, a region where we don't know, and so we're going to to coalesce that into something, and that I think explains why there is such a widespread God consciousness. That that young person who realizes that there's this endless succession of whys is grateful when somebody suggests, why don't you put all those unanswered whys into a, a single concept? And for most people, that is the ability, that gives them the ability to shut off thinking about it. Say, okay, that's God, we're good with that. Now I can put God on a shelf and I can get on with my life. Okay. So so it answers first that God consciousness and, and why it is widespread. So imagine that I am um, a, a somebody who's who's figured out the first lesson, the lesson of the first three. I, I figured out that it, it, that being able to know myself, being able to recognize, you know, being, being conscious, self-aware, that I am trapped in an endless set of lies. I make myself a god. I, I congeal that into, into you know, a, a, a roughly a single domain. But I don't have the benefit of the second commandment. So what do I do? Well, I... I examined the phenomena that I am attributing to God. So let's let's use wind. I've been using that, and, and it's one that sort of is plays pretty heavily in uh, in early religion, especially in the Anishinaabe up here in Minnesota. So I make a graven image of God. I see the wind blowing, and I do not understand why it blows sometimes and not other times. And it's, it's pretty forceful. It uh, causes, at times, it, it causes damage. It, it makes the cold so much worse. And and I have a lot of questions about about why there is wind. Um, and so I create for myself the graven image of the wind god. I say, well, I don't know what was before the wind. I don't know what caused the wind. So, since I don't know that, I am going to, I, I'm going to attribute that to this god. So it is, I start to think about, well, what would this God be like? And, and when you're looking at the wind, you very much, it's easy to anthropomorphize the wind. 
right? Not not to make it into the shape of a man, but to have the wind um, roughly be the personality of a and you. As sophisticated as I am, and you can decide how sophisticated that is, there are sometimes the wind seems so angry. And then other times when the wind is just as strong and it, it just seems like exciting. Now, I know, it, it can't possibly be. Well, I don't know if it can possibly be, but I'll assume that that can't possibly be. But I will tell you, it's not a huge jump to to see something um, of a consciousness, something human-like in the wind. So, so let's say this this person who has who has called it the god of the wind starts to pay attention to this god, and, and again, embody it in. Well, we have trouble thinking of a consciousness not embodied somewhere. And so, could I see them embodying it in a, in a carving that, that sits in the middle of their house? Yeah, I guess I could. I'm not sure that they thought it was the God who was actually living there, but that's as good a place as anywhere. And, and there's some there's something profound about that. Um, it's like, where is the World Wide Web? Well, it's in my phone. It's like, well, it's a lot of other places too. Yeah, but do I really care? I, I mean, I, I don't really have to care where the server is that has the particular information that I'm seeking. I don't really care what all the structure is, that the point to me is that I have the World Wide Web in my hand. And so if, if somebody says, hey, you know, the, the, the wind seems off an awful lot like, an awful lot like a consciousness, a personality that can, well, they can get angry and get happy and, and have a range of emotions and and I want to pay attention to that because maybe, maybe I can do things to uh, to not make the wind so angry, and, and maybe I could do some things that would actually make the wind be happy more of the time, or calm the wind down. So I, I make my little idol of the god of the wind and uh, design it to, to remind me. As a matter of fact, it may be like a little, have lots of streaming things from it that blow in the wind. And later when I draw pictures I, I of the idol, I, I have the wind, um, have the wind displaying sort of that windiness or, or whatever. The, but, but what we have here is an organic way. This is the thing that I'm stressing, is I think it is a much better, much better description of how organically I could come to worship 
and in a statue that I think embodies the wind. It doesn't involve a sophisticated person pulling the wolves over the eyes of an unsophisticated And I think it definitely has much more of the descriptor of, of a type of worship of things that could have emerged simultaneously across many, many different peoples and cultures and, and uh, 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 meteorological conditions and climates. Um, so let's say I do that. I, I ignored the prohibition against creating a graven image, or I ignored the truth that the thing that really is God is the thing that I can't describe. So, so it isn't that the God makes the wind blow. It's that God is the answer to what makes the wind blow. And, and that's a subtle difference, but look at what happens. So I start paying attention. Because I, I've, I've had problems and I... I want to learn about the wind, right? Because I don't want to make it make it angry anymore. I want to be very, very sensitive to it. I, so I start worshiping my idol of the wind, and probably I don't realize that a lot of things are correlated to my actions. But when I pay attention to the wind, I think I I find that there's there's a lot more I can know about it. And so the wind then coalesces into to ordinal directions of the compass. And I realize that there's actually four parts to this. It's a very means something very different. When the wind is coming from, from the north, it's it's different than when the wind is from the south, or, or, or the wind as it blows from the west is a is a steady calming wind. The wind that blows from the east is a, a wind that that riles things up. So what have I done? Well, I, I've, in a, in a minor way, I put to death the simpler God, and already I am replacing that God with now four gods. And as time goes on, I worship those four gods, and I begin to discover discover more things about I travel to different places and, and the wind acts differently and if I am a worshiper of the wind god I pay attention to that and the, the irony is that the more conscientiously I worship the wind god the sooner I kill him. I, I worship the wind god and, and I pay attention. I guard against doing things that will will have negative results and I begin to, to know that that even though maybe I can't change it, I can at least begin to predict I can say, oh, there, there'll be a north wind coming. 
based on a pattern that I saw before. And then as we move into the modern age, we, we start to find, find ways to, to measure different aspects. And it's somebody who, who is, so to speak, worshipped the, the wind, who paid attention enough to one day figure out that, that what the wind is doing is it's, it's coming from someplace where there's too much air and flowing into someplace that doesn't have enough air. And that this is constantly reshuffling. That's, that's pretty amazing. But what did I just do? I just killed, just killed the God. And brought to life another God. If I don't pay attention to the second command, right? I, I put to death the wind God, and I brought to life the pressure God. And so, the God of air pressure, now I start to attend to. And, and I know that this didn't happen when we were making idols of it. The discovery of, of barometers was, was not until we didn't think in terms of idols, but I'm not, I'm not so sure that, that the same thing happens. Scientists do not like their theories to be put to death. Um, you, you, you listen to the, the people on the cutting edge of science, and very often they, they are in like a feud with one of their students who, I mean, all the other students just nicely accept their idol. But there'll be one student who goes on and says, no, no, you didn't, you didn't get that all. There's, there's something more. And so then they part ways. They fight over their idol. And then, and here's, here's the odd thing about us humans, is that then they go out, discover something new, and make a new idol. I, I pointed that out about myself. I think that I, as it comes to understanding God, although it, it also comes to theories I have had um, within sort of a scientific realm, but anyway, I, I, I have this idea. I, I think it's profound. And, and later it's proven to be more or less true. Or at least I revise what I was hypothesizing to fit the, the new discovery. And I feel like, all oh, right, I had that figured out before anyone else. And then I immediately get offended when one of my, one of the people who's learned from me says, well, I don't think you got it all. I'm like, how dare you? I've asked far more questions. I've looked into this deeply. You're just a, you're just a kid suggesting that that my little god here isn't adequate and so the worship of the gods and i think it is i mean this always bothered me is, is that even in the bible it talked about the gods it says thou shalt have 
no other gods before me. When I saw that as a proscription, I said, well, there's a problem with that construction, right? If there are other gods, why should they get to be God? Do they not get to be God because of, of a dominance hierarchy at the very highest level? So my God tells them they don't get to be God? No, I think what happens, and, and, and I think it fits the stories and it fits the tendency of gods to resolve into, and it seems to be a trend to monotheism. Um, again, it was Jordan Peterson who pointed it out, but once he pointed it out, I, I, do, I do see that. And all these gods and the people are like, but there, there must be one God because it gets pretty burdensome to have your whole house filled with idols with every aspect of God. Isn't there one God who, who sort of rules over them that, that as long as I made him happy, I wouldn't have to worry about making all of these other lesser gods? Um, you know, just in terms of time and, and money and energy. And so I, I do think there's a trend to monotheism. But what happens then is, is these gods are constantly replaced until you come up with this brilliant idea that it isn't, it isn't the god, that, that, that god is always what was just out of your reach. You know, by the time you're actually getting the question to the place where you're saying, well, what is it that really makes the wind blow? What causes this? When you start to dig, well, then the god of the wind is is in his dotage. He, he's almost ready to be put to death. And what's going to put him to death is the people who attended to him. Unless... Unless you're God, and unless you structure your society not to worship each of these iterations of the discovery, but you teach your society to actually worship the discovery itself. And even that's not correct. It's not the discovery itself. It is the desire to discover itself. It is, and, and this it intersects with, with some of the biblical tests, it is the desire to make it make sense. And, and this, this faith that it should make sense. I mean, that's, that's kind of preposterous that we think the world should make sense. And yet we do. That may be faith, faith and reason. They're, they're this partner that is the very heart of God. We think that it should make sense. And so we hunger for that sense. And we don't stop looking until we get it. And then it's not done. There's just something else that needs to be made sense. No. That is not within us. I think it's important. We're not worshiping our imaginations. 
we are we are worshiping the thing that will make it make sense and and our our worship of that thing the, the homage which we owe to the idea that it may make sense that homage is looking and searching that is that is the sacrifice which we owe to this god of gods and we better not worship our worship of him and i think I, i'm just realizing i think that happens a lot what we worship is our seeking of this answer it's like no the, the seeking isn't it is it is that there may be an answer that is so profound and so what do we have we have this pathway of gods which have lived and died not uselessly but you find throughout the old testament you find constantly somebody saying let me tell you about well in the new testament too paul let me tell you about the living god there 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 gathered around you are all the husks of the things that you thought were god and you sucked the life out of it and it turned out it wasn't quite the god and and you aren't evil for having thought that it was a god and and you weren't deceived by someone who who put foisted this upon you although that's always a danger but there was something organically significant to this to this search of yours your your belief in these gods was real but they served their purpose they lived and they died but there is a living god and that living god is the god who answers the next question the living god is is the god who resides in the fact that once you encapsulate some truth he's waiting for you just at the edges you have a choice to go on and seek him or gather around this dead graven image and 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 you don't have to tear down that graven image you just have to know that that's not the life there's a living god so to to sum it up what i am saying is what seems significant to me is that i when i give this interpretation to the first two commands it starts to to answer questions it starts to explain things across a much broader um set of questions 
so I, I think that the truth that I am grappling at or hinting at, I think it's there. I don't think I'm putting it into the tech. It may be that it was there and very few people have sort of realized it. And there's one other thing, and that is the possibility and the claim that, that this is inspired. And that would that would be based on the idea that, that maybe I'm the first person who who suggests excuse me who suggests some aspect of truth that is in this verse. But the idea would be that that aspect was there. It was put there by something transcendent. And so it wasn't something, I may be, I may be talking about something which was, which was discovered, or which wasn't discovered by the writer. It may not have been intended by the writer, okay. But it was, but it was nevertheless there. It was there from some other source. Okay, I'm not, I'm not claiming that. I'm just saying that is roughly the claim of inspiration. Is that somebody, something, some power, some power motivated the, the writer or the editor or whoever to add something that they did not yet understand in faith that it was worth saying, that it was deeper than known. But whatever the case, if it's inspired, um, I'm not. I'm not arguing that it is. I'm just saying if it is inspired, or if it isn't, I do think that looking at those first two commands as descriptive natural law, from which we infer certain proscriptions, is a answers a lot more of the questions. Um, it, it is true on a lot more levels than sort of the concept that this was a, a domination. You better obey this God because we're telling you he's the only God. And just don't, you know, he, he's a big enough of a bully. Or, or we, the people who see ourselves as the holy men devoted to this God, are big enough bullies to say you've got to listen. I just think that that interpretation is so simplistic. But anyway, I don't know whether now it might lend some light for me to look at the third commandment. If so, you'll find it someday. If not, have yourselves a good day. Look forward to when we talk again.